0: Good morning. You're listening to 45.1 FM, The Narrow Century. I'm Gordon Graham, bringing you the news you need to hear when you need to hear it. Coming up next, we're going to be interviewing... Er... hang on. I've just been informed that we will not be interviewing anyone this morning... In fact, we've been further informed that we aren't a news organization or even a radio program. If I'm reading this correctly, we are a podcast of Irregular Tales, which means... Sorry, hang on. We've just been further informed that we are, in fact, an I, since this is a solo project and I'm recording this alone. Who am I talking to? Why haven't I edited this misunderstanding out if this isn't a live broadcast? Stay tuned. T'was many, many years ago, in the deep winter of humankind, so long that not many can still tell the story. Gather, then, and hear it again. The story of the big war, the great hush, and the endless snowfall. Gather, and hear the story of the first Christmas. It was... was... I'm sorry. I know we've got the traditions to keep, but... I need everyone to be patient for a bit. Indulge me. I'll get to the telling. I've just... I have things that need saying. The truth is, I don't remember the first Christmas. That'll disappoint some of you. I have my reputation as the one who's seen everything and knows everything, but even my age only goes back so far. I was there, it's true. The last fire, the great hush, the endless snowfall, all of that. But the truth is, I was just a baby at the time. My brother Logan was really the last person in the lodge who could have given a first-hand version of those days. I do remember pretty far back, though. What's the first Christmas at the lodge I can remember? Strange question, I guess. What's the first Christmas any of us can remember from when we were really young and the tree seemed like it was a thousand feet high and it seemed like Christmas Eve lasted all winter? I do remember that it was a good tree, though. We still had most of the original ornaments and the old electric lights that were, well, they were different. These ones we have now last forever, but the old ones were warmer and dimmer, more like sunlight than starlight. That Christmas, the first one I remember, I would sneak out of our room after bedtime, down here to the great hall, and I would lie on my stomach and look up at the tree until I fell asleep. "'I grabbed pine needles from the floor "'and kept them with me while I was doing my chores "'so I could smell the sap and feel the prickle "'whenever I had a free moment. "'Oh, then that would have been the fourth Christmas "'after the big war that I remember, "'if I had chores to do. "'Digging and clearing paths to the smokehouses "'and the storage cabins took me all day, "'and then the next day I would be told "'I needed to dig it out again, "'and I was angry because I couldn't understand why.' It just kept snowing that year. I guess maybe that's why the raiders came up from the lowlands. Yes, Fourth Christmas. You'd know it as the year of the battle. Take a look there, on the tapestry. We weren't weaving it then, but we took care to include the battle when we started. Crude work, but... You can still see the essentials, the snow mounds, the trenches and embankments, the raiders with the war madness in their eyes, and the blood. We knew they were on the mountain before they were sure there was anyone in the lodge. Hunters had spotted them tossing the town a week before Christmas. The lodge was livid with rumors and worry. My mother tried to keep the speculation away from Logan and me, but there was no getting away from it. The lodge was too small, and the news was too important to keep quiet. Hungry men with guns were coming. They did three days before Christmas. Logan wanted to help with the fighting, but he got shepherded down into the basement with the rest of us. Me, our mother. It's the closeness of the air that really stuck with me, I think. And the sounds. Cracks of gunfire echoing through the walls like thunder. Shouts now and then. The cellar was thick with fear. I didn't let go of my mother for as long as the sounds went on. Near the end of it, I remember, I can still hear a single voice screaming that came up through the din, and it just went on and on and on. I never asked if it had been one of the raiders or one of us. The bodies, theirs and ours, had been hidden by the time I was allowed upstairs, but nobody could wash the blood out of the snow. Do you see There the tapestry. It felt like the whole mountain was painted red. But we still had the holiday. We cooked our little banquet. We brought out what little wine was left in the cellars. We found pictures of the people we'd lost to the battle. And on Christmas Eve, another snowfall rolled in. It covered over the blood, and the shell casings, and the trenches, and we awoke to find the mountain washed white again. I was too young to really know anyone who had died, but I cried with everyone else while we exchanged their last gifts. That's right. You wouldn't understand. Gifts were different in those days. We exchanged gifts back in the beginning, before the Big War, too. We'd give a gift to people closest to us, immediate family, a friend or two. It's hard to explain it. After all this time, it's easy to see why we all started giving our gifts to the whole lodge. When my mother gave a set of building blocks to me, it was only natural that the other kids should get to play with it, too. If someone managed to dig a bottle of good liquor out of the ruins down the mountain, it got split into as many glasses as we could find, no matter who it was supposed to be given to. Of course the presents got bigger and more widely shared. Gifts for few were a relic of a much bigger world. But it took us a little bit to learn that... that it was a smaller place then. Anyway, it wasn't long after the battle that we started making things. Logan learned a little carpentry to shore up the damage the raiders had done. I learned to carry a bucket of nails... Some of the older women, knitters and quilters, started on the tapestry before the next Christmas. You can see the next few years after the battle. The year of the long summer, Madeline's year, the year of the goats, the lights-out year, when the old windmill stopped working and before we got the new ones up, the year of the burn. We stopped counting time in numbers for a long while and went by more useful measures— I marked off my height on the doorframe in our suite, and Logan and me both kept track of the furthest we'd been from the lodge. We circled down into the western meadows one year, spent a spring collecting the lavender that grew there. We visited the trappers and the hunters in the cabins under the south face. Logan learned skinning, I learned to turn the rabbits into stew. The year of the burn, we dared to spend two whole days picking our way down toward the ruins of Government Town. There's nothing left there by now, but I'd never seen anything bigger than the lodge before, so it looked immense to me. I couldn't have been older than ten, and I was terrified, still thinking of the stories our mother had told us to scare us away from the ruins. She said that lowland raiders made camps there, and there were bears the size of trees that slept in the basements. Logan couldn't get me to come further than the very edge of town, and he left me there to stoke a fire while he went and scavenged a few unbroken mason jars from a low brick building, his treasures. Our mother thrashed him over that little expedition, but she still used the jars to teach me how to make Marionberry preserves. Those were probably the first present that I gave that Christmas. We ate it on unleavened crackers, and put up pictures of the couple of people we'd lost that year. The mountain was our world. It gave us everything we needed if we knew how to ask for it. Meat, if we weren't too greedy. Milk, once we learned to live with the goats. Honey, once we got the hives set up in the meadows. We knew... (laughs) Well, I guess I should say that I understood that there was life in the lowlands, but only academically. We had a radio that worked now and then. Ben Gould would tinker with it, said something about charged dust in the upper atmosphere, something foul in the clouds. The voices he managed to pull out of the air were no more than ghosts to me, like bedtime stories the grown-ups would tell around the fire. They babbled nonsense words like electromagnetic pulse and fallout, and names like South Station and Fort Callister. Everything I knew was here, Every person I'd ever talked to or ever seen lived in this lodge on this mountain. Anywhere else in the world was as far away as the days before the war. Logan tried to explain it to me, explain the way it used to be. He pulled books off shelves and found atlases and road maps. The older he got, the more time he spent poring over them, and the more time he spent trying to explain them to me more nonsense words like Pacific and Chusets and Europe, and more that I can't even begin to remember. He remembered, even though he'd never seen any of them himself. He felt he'd been robbed of that chance, I guess. And he kept getting angry when he couldn't make me understand what we couldn't have anymore. I don't remember how old I was when we got our first honest-to-God visitor at the lodge, but I remember that we didn't give him much of a welcome. A couple of hunters came bounding in through the front doors, shouting about a figure picking his way up the pass. We all thought he was scouting for more raiders, and he was no more than a few hours down the mountain. It's a miracle that nobody shot him, that he had a chance to try and explain himself, that the radio equipment worked long enough to get word from South Station that he was all right. There were a lot of reasons to dump his body in a ravine and think no more about it, but for better or for worse, we had a guest for the holidays. His name was Jackson. I can't say if that was his first name or last, only that it was all he went by. The adults were wary of him, but most of us kids were thrilled to have somebody new to talk to, and we peppered him with questions. Had he ever seen a bear? Had he ever shot someone? Had he ever been shot? Did he know any fun games? We showed him to the Christmas tree, and if there's one thing that sticks with me, it's the glint of tears I saw in his eyes. He sat down for a long time, just looking at it, like it was a ghost or a monster or an angel. As he told it, the lowlands were full of decorations—broken lights, dead trees, cracked and fading plastic ornaments, and lawn figures. The big war happening just a few days before Christmas left the whole world frozen in place. All the happiness of the season had burned away, and for the last ten years all he'd seen of the holiday was its corpse. But there, in the glow of the tree, I could see something spark in his spirit that must have once been dead itself. When he joined us for the big Christmas dinner, he laughed and sang and remembered the dead along with us, and he added a few names to our lists of the lost. He gave gifts of things he'd brought for trade, refurbished knives and reading glasses and steel-sewing needles. I suppose in a certain sense he took something, too, though I didn't notice it happening. Logan was near enough to twenty, and... He spent more time talking to Jackson than most. He pulled out his road maps and asked him all kinds of questions about wind patterns and highways and faraway cities that had used to be part of the wider world. I could tell our mother was worried, but I couldn't see why until it was too late. Jackson left the lodge just after the new year, and Logan went with him. He left a letter and promised he'd be back before the next Christmas. He wasn't. Or for the Christmas after that, my mother would hang around the radio room hoping to hear word from South Station that Jackson or Logan had come through, but no word ever arrived. A third Christmas came without Logan. After that, I stopped counting. My mother never did. Mr. Kahn and Abby Fitzroy talked a couple of times about adding his picture to the tree or toasting him along with the others, but she never allowed it. He'd promised that he was coming home. I count myself lucky that I don't remember the war or the time before it. Logan always had a hard time with that. The lodge was just too small to be his world, and he was too young to be afraid of... ...what might be waiting in the lowlands. We kept ourselves busy, waiting for him to get back. Over the next few years, we ran out of things to give and re-give, so we started making more things of our own. We started building furniture and clothing and toys, stuffed with straw and lavender. I helped my mother to build the beehives in the lower meadows, and she helped me to bake the honey into bread I learned to grind from the wild grains... We learned how to tan hides and blow glass. Look at the tapestry. Can you see how we improved over those years? It was the year of the carpentry shop, the second burn, the year of the wildcat, the year of the convoy. We got guests from South Station and Fort Callister, men with uniforms and medals who brought weird lowland goods like popcorn and salted fish and electronic gizmo games. They must all be broken by now. It was a long time ago. Our guests told us about the raiders that still raged with war madness in the lowlands, and the great walls of killing dust that whirled across the plains. They told us we were lucky to have our lodge, and we'd do well to keep closing off the passes in wintertime. I remember, I was bringing out soup for the guests, and I heard someone, Otto Lang, I think, asking the men with medals and stars about how the war got started. The big one but even the old military officers couldn't say for sure. We sent them down the mountain with pelts and honeyed nuts and jars of preserves for their families, with our good wishes. The year after that was a dark one. Look there. Do you see on the tapestry? The year of the bug. Somehow, nobody could rightly say, a germ made its way into the lodge. Maybe the traders brought it with them. That bug tore through us like nothing else. Dr. Fitzroy, he fought it as best he could, and then he passed on from it. He said that he could have fixed it in a week if he'd had a halfway decent pharmacy, but by then we were already down to the herbs and teas we could find on the mountain. All we could do was make more toasts to those we lost when Christmas came around again. The year turned, and we made do with the life we were left with. We added their pictures to the tree as well as we could. We didn't have photos for most of them, and started making charcoal drawings. Look, you see there? That's Dr. Fitzroy. There's Waldo Botstein. That's baby Fiona. That's Imari Khan. That's... That's... Oh, hell. I can't quite remember. There are so many names now. Who can keep track of them all? I suppose we do our best. Logan did come back, in case the younger among you were wondering. He'd been gone longer than he'd been at the lodge to begin with. Good Lord, I was already twenty by then? When I saw him come in, I felt about eight years old again. He was burdened down with bags and furs and skins, and he had the sort of beard I was used to seeing on trappers coming in from the southern cabins. "'Hey,' he said. "'I heard about Mom. "'I'm sorry.' I tried to beat the living hell out of him, but I guess nine years in the lowlands have a way of hardening a man. He tried to explain, to talk about where he'd been and who he'd met, what had kept him away from us, the lodgers, his family, his own mother— "'for nearly a decade, but I didn't have the patience to hear it. "'As I said at the time, it had all been used up waiting for him. "'Our mother had died in the year of the bug. "'I can't recall if I've mentioned that already. "'I... we... had buried her out near the beehives, "'near the markers for the father and sister I'd never met.' It's hardly surprising that we didn't have much to talk about. Logan had lived so much of his life away from me, before the war, before I'd been born, out on the road, seeing and doing God knows what, and then he'd come back and found his only family was a kid he'd hardly known, a native to this post-war world that he was stranded in. I'm sure he thought of me like a stranger that wouldn't leave him alone. I know I sometimes thought the same. Then Christmas came, as it always did. We popped corn and strung it on long garlands, just like we do today. We got the lights out of the cellar. We prepared our gifts in secret. We sang our carols. We took refuge in the tradition, and Logan was there with us. He still remembered the songs and had small gifts from his travels for all the children that had been born since he'd left. We explained how we gave gifts now, and he smiled and nodded and said that made more sense. We had the Christmas Eve feast together, and he told jokes I hadn't realized I'd first heard from him. We made our offerings to the dead. Things turned, as they do. The year died... a new one was born. Family, long dead to me, returned. Those were good years that came after. Hard years, of course, bad winters, narrow times for hunting, blights that ran through the crops. We traded for more goats from the lowlands and had to get used to bringing them in when the snows came too heavy. Logan took to ranging out on the mountain, and it wasn't long before he was regarded as one of the best trappers, and he was always sure to come back to the lodge for Christmas. It was in those days I found my way to the job of head cook that's kept me so popular, even into my rambling and cantankerous old age. I'd say it's good of you to keep putting up with me, but I know that you only do it because you don't want to risk going without my mushroom pie. But... but... I know. This is dragging on long, and I still haven't gotten to the real story. The first Christmas. How it all began. I promise I'll tell it, same as every year, but it's important that I tell these stories too. It's important that you, that we understand what it all meant. If it meant anything. Our work on the tapestry continued. I left it to quicker fingers and more poetic souls. Look there, that's the year of the wolf pack. It seemed so long ago that I can only remember them as those char-black monsters. There's the mill when we first built it. Oh, the year of ten births. Good Lord, but those were happy times. A happy Christmas when we all gave blankets and mittens and candies. That wasn't so far back. A few more of you might remember that. We were so wrapped up in cooing over the little ones that we almost forgot to toast the dead just from seeing little Charlotte and Kirk and Jonah and, yes, even you too, Maddie. But you get the idea. It was around the time that the tree was getting so full of pictures that nobody could put names to all the faces. Who could blame us for wanting to celebrate new life a little more strongly? Down in the lowlands, things took a bad turn, and we were more thankful than ever for our lonely mountain. Plague and war swept through places we'd heard of through the traders, and we were wary enough of illness that we kept clear of outsiders for a whole year. Logan wanted to scout, but I put my foot down and said he wouldn't leave again, not when there was so much danger. We were safe when we toasted the dead that Christmas "'We slipped in a good word for the friends we had in harm's way. "'We cried in the darkness. "'We waited for the light. "'It seems like a different world now. "'We've got history, I guess, "'to pick up more faithfully where my tall tales leave off. "'Word came up the mountain that the traders were getting organized, "'and Fort Callister was going to hold an election, of all things.' We heard that the dollar was good for trade again, and the oldest folks dug out the few bills they'd squirreled away. It didn't make any sense to me. I just didn't see how it could affect us lodgers. And it didn't. For years afterward, we had our chores and our crafts and our secret gifts in the fall and winter. We had our tapestry and our songs. Then it was... Then they... Then people started leaving. I can't even remember how it started, but... People started going down the mountain, and they weren't coming back. The roads were safe enough. The world was getting bigger. And young folk who'd been hearing about Fort Callister and the dollar and the days before the big war for their whole lives suddenly seemed to realize that they didn't have to hear about it secondhand anymore. And the older people, they—we—seemed to realize that we were coming up on our times to join the lists of the dead. Logan, my brother, was the last. I might have mentioned that already. He got sick with something that dragged him out for years— Nothing anybody could explain, not since the last of the doctors had passed. I tempted and browbeat him out of his cabin and back to the lodge, and he started his long, slow journey towards death. I sat and talked with him every day the kitchens could do without me. He told me stories I hadn't wanted to hear. They were—they really are—still fairy stories to me. But he wanted to tell me— like when he'd shown me maps of Chusets in Europe when we were small. He said how he and that first wanderer, Jackson, had followed railroad tracks across the desert to mountains smaller and stranger than ours, where they'd met Indian tribes and gangs of raiders who revered old war machines. Logan told me about vast cities that he could only see through the end of a spyglass— Now, ruins huger and more dangerous than the little hamlet of Government Town that had scared me as a boy. There were shadows left behind by the big war where no plant would grow and no animal would walk, and he learned to skirt by listening to clicks from a yellow box that Jackson had given him. He told me about the Pacific again. He still couldn't make me understand it. Well, he got weaker and the winter got colder. I think we all got anxious that he wouldn't be able to tell the story before the end came. He was never worried, though. Whenever we'd press him, he would just say, It can wait for Christmas. And it did. Christmas Eve arrived, and he insisted that we bring him out for the feast. He could hardly eat four bites, beamed the whole time. We could feel something in the air while we waited like a specter of death was waiting in the hall for its moment. At last, the time came for the toast to the dead. Logan cleared his throat. The whole of the lodge fell silent. Over the years, I don't know how many dozens of times you must have told the story. We have our version of it, our tradition, the... "'Twas many, many years ago, and the deep winter of humankind, to go along with the toasts and the pictures and the tree. He had the last word about it, though. He'd been ten years old when his parents suggested they have a special Christmas." They were going to go up to the lodge for the holidays. Our mother was still on maternity leave, and our father got time off work. It had been a rough year, emotionally, politically, and they wanted to splurge on my first Christmas. Our sister, Maggie, was three years older than Logan and had begged to be allowed to spend the holiday with a friend back in the city. At first, Logan was sad about his first Christmas away from the old house, but when they came up the slopes and he saw the lodge for the first time, he could barely contain his excitement. It was like a palace up there on the lap of the mountain, with more rooms and hallways and stairs than he could begin to explore. Our parents were just relieved at a chance to get away from the wider world. There was trouble brewing, even if they couldn't really see what kind yet. They'd been at the lodge for three days when messages started to come in over the wireless. Adults started to cluster around the gizmos and they started trying to get messages to loved ones, friends, people with connections. A lot of people started to leave the lodge to find their people. Logan didn't understand what was going on but he was starting to get scared. The radio and the other machines stopped working and people started to get really scared. They talked about Retaliatory strikes and the future of the country, and then the first sounds of the war began to echo over the mountains. It was bigger than thunder, bigger than any sound anyone alive has ever heard, probably. It went straight through the walls of the lodge and shook the foundations like an avalanche without snow. Pops and flashes of light appeared in the distance. Great spears of flame leapt into the sky and panic ran through the guests as they rushed to the basements and storerooms of the lodge. Black smoke welled up in plumes the size of mountains. Day turned to night. The sounds of war would not stop for hours and hours. No matter how much he cried, or I cried for that matter, it couldn't stop the booming that swept across us in monstrous waves. There was nothing anyone could do. It was the end of the world, it felt like. Of course, even the end had to give way to something else. The weapons of the big war hadn't come anywhere near the remote lodge, and by some strange chance, the collection of people who had just come to enjoy the mountain were spared the fires that had consumed the world all around them. The lodge had supplies of food, it had a well that drew from the snowmelt. It had wind generators for electricity and warmth, even in the winter. Many couldn't stay, of course. They had family who might have been spared. The people who had worked at the lodge largely abandoned it. The ones who were left were mostly those who were from too far away to hope to go home. The Botsteins, the Fitzroys, the Cons, And there was us. Our parents knew we wouldn't find any place better to stay. Our father took the car, promising that he'd find Maggie, our sister, and bring her back to the safety of the lodge. Logan didn't want him to go, but he offered one last hug goodbye before our father pulled the door shut and drove off down the road. Logan never saw him or our sister again. They kept the lights out, and the heat down, to make sure the power lasted as long as possible. The sky was clogged with dust and ash, so the darkness slipped seamlessly from one midnight to the next. There was nothing to do, nobody to contact, no job that seemed worth doing in the face of this apparent last night for the human race. Logan said that nothing our mother did could comfort me, and I just cried until I fell asleep from exhaustion, then started crying again as soon as I woke up. We had survived the war, but the question hung in everyone's mind. What made it worth surviving? It was December 24th. The big war had begun and ended two days earlier, and a few of the remaining people who'd worked at the lodge decided to do something. They'd already been getting ready for a grand Christmas gala for the guests, and most of the pieces were in place. They decided that whatever else had happened, whatever else we had lost, they weren't going to cancel it. They got the help of a few other survivors and spent all day working. As they cooked and cleaned and decorated, a strong, cold wind began to blow from the north, and miraculously, the air began to clear as the weak sunlight faded and the stars began to peek out from the clouds, the survivors and staff grabbed the remaining guests, about forty people altogether. We gathered in the front entryway, outside the big doors into the great hall, and one of the desk clerks called up to another person who stood by a switchbox on the second floor. They pushed open the double doors, and Logan let out a shriek of surprise and delight when he saw the room beyond light up. There was a Christmas tree and a table laden with stews and roasted fowl, and garlands of popped corn. Row upon row of bottles stood at the sideboard, and a pyramid of fluted glasses stood on a white tablecloth. At the same tree Logan swore it was sixty feet tall, lit up, all of the lights on the outside of the lodge lit, too, and the lights in every window, They stoked the furnace and lit a roaring fire, and they used a machine, now long broken, to play the Christmas songs all through the lodge. The sound of bells was in every hall, in every room, and, as Logan put it, in every heart. They moved through the room like they were afraid to touch the food or the drink, in case it would vanish as soon as they reached for it. And Logan grabbed a slice of cake from a towering tray, and the spell was broken, and the room erupted in laughter and celebration. People rushed to their rooms to grab Christmas presents they had brought but forgotten about, and piled them under the tree for the next morning. Drink flowed like water, and the carols that seemed so childish and distant a few hours earlier came to the lips of every man, woman, and child. There were people at that first Christmas who had never celebrated the holiday before. It didn't matter. There was comfort in ritual, and people started to understand that this was the first Christmas, not the last one. It was the darkest night of human history, and they sang and ate and gave. As the night went on, Knocks came at the front door, people from government town down the mountain had seen the lights, and people who'd been staying in cabins all over the southern face had been snapped out of their days. They were welcome to the feast without a second thought. When Logan finally fell asleep that night, it was with our mother's arm around him and the sound of laughter in his ears, a sound that he had thought he would never hear again. Seventy years later, Almost to the hour, Logan was dead. He passed away in that chair, right over there, not long after he finished his last telling of the story. At the time, there were more than a hundred lodgers. Now there are barely as many as there were that first Christmas. The world is a brighter place than it was those many years ago. Those were bleak times that Logan and I saw together, whatever our perspective was, however we felt about the lodge. These days, caravans run from here to the Colorado River, and the great Pacific beyond. I've heard wonders from travelers that I never would have dreamed of 50 years ago, Stories of cities that glitter with electric light. Aeroplanes once again taking to the sky. People speaking across gulfs of 10,000 miles or more. We live in a world that may never again see the year of the battle, or the year of the bug, or the year of lights out. But... But with every year, with every young person that goes down the mountain to find that wider world... I am over and over again struck with the thought that it's a world that will never have other things as well. The first taste of honey in years. The thrill of a couple new mason jars. There's no room in the wider world for a gift given to everyone, or for long-dead family to return, or for the simple joys of ten new souls to celebrate. (sighs) Ah. I'm an old fogey. This has been common knowledge for longer than most of you can remember. I'm a relic, or worse, I'm an animal that could only have existed in that narrow gap between good times, serving mushroom pies and merry and berry preserves to distract us from the horrors all around. The one time when a few electric bulbs wrapped around a pine tree can be a miracle. Maybe I'll never be happy without the specter of death waiting at the door. Christmas is, after all, the time we reflect on death. The death of family, the death of culture, the deaths of six billion people so many years ago. But as we have learned, the death of one thing doesn't mean life can't return. One year perishes in the dark, another year is born. One civilization incinerates itself, and new hope flourishes from its ashes. One tradition falls by the wayside, and a new one emerges in its spirit. There is light in our futures. Songs. Feasts. What we had here was beautiful, if brief. Carry that with you, and remember to toast the dead.
1: The Narrow Century, episode 15, War on
0: Christmas, was written and performed by Gordon Graham. Music was provided, with permission, by Petunia and the Vipers and Rachel Sermani. For written material and further episodes, visit NarrowCentury.com.